Hi everyone, it's Wednesday, September 17th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Bevan, who's an associate professor in the Department of Physiology at Northwestern University. Welcome, Mark. Hi. Around the room today, we have Charles Wilson. That's me. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Chris Deister. Hello. Michael Ferris. Hello. And Ramana Dodla. Hello. I'm Salma Qureshi. Thanks for being here, everybody. The general topic of today's discussion will be, of course, basal ganglia. And I thought maybe you could take us through uh, the classic model of basal ganglia function, the two pathways, and sort of where we stand now in, in terms of the current the current wisdom that's, that's kind of like come about. So um, the classic model. So this arose from um, Albin, Penny, and Young. Uh, it's a paper in 1989, and I guess it was a synthesis of many people's work, mostly um, Malon DeLong um, and also uh, Anne Young's group as well. Uh, and the idea was that there are these two major pathways of information flow through the basal ganglia, um, and these pathways are differentially regulated by dopamine. Uh, and the idea is that the direct pathway is positively modulated by dopamine, uh, and this pathway leads to inhibition of the inhibitory basal ganglia output, thus leading to disinhibition of uh, basal ganglia targets and movement. Um, and uh, balancing this uh, is the indirect pathway, and this pathway is normally inhibited by dopamine. Uh, and so the idea was that in Parkinson's disease, is you get a change in the relative balances, relative balance of activities in these two major pathways, uh, and the indirect pathway comes to the fore, uh, and it leads to uh, an increase in the output of the basal ganglia and um, excessive inhibition of basal ganglia targets, and apparently accounts for the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Being what I mean. Uh... So in Parkinson's disease, the idea is dopamine is gone, mm -hmm. and so the indirect pathway neurons that would normally be inhibited are actually not anymore, so they're firing a lot faster. The direct path, so that's, I mean, this is what we have to do. This is a feed-forward rate model, and to understand it, we have to like walk through it, right? Right. So then, because those cells are firing a lot faster than normal, the GPE, E is inhibited a lot more than normal, and so the GPI isn't inhibited as much as it should be. And then, then the direct pathway, those cells are firing slower, and so the GPI again isn't inhibited as much as it should be, because those cells would be inhibiting it directly. Mm -hmm. And so the GPI should be firing a lot faster than normal, yes. and the GPE a lot slower, slower yeah. than normal. So, I mean, the, the classical indirect pathway is um, uh, medium, well, gabarogic projection neurons in the striatum projecting to the external segment of the globus pallidus. Uh, and in those days, the, the idea was that the external segment of the globus pallidus influences internal segment, internal globus pallidus neurons um, indirectly through the subthalamic nucleus. And so the idea was that the, the GPE neurons were uh, excessively inhibited, leading to disinhibition of the subthalamic nucleus. And because this nucleus is excitatory, there was therefore 
um, excessive excitation of basal ganglia output neurons and then excessive inhibition of basal ganglia targets. That's right. The GPE yeah. to GPI pathway was discovered years later, later. by yeah. Tony Kincaid. Yeah, Tony Kincaid uh, and also Yolanda Smith as well did a lot of work on that. So, um, so yeah, so the so the problems. Uh, it, it's a great um, teaching tool. It's really great to introduce the basal ganglia using this model uh, to graduate students and undergraduates. Um, and it's been useful. It's been useful for um, sort of formulating um, research. But really, there's a lot of evidence that. Um, Sort of the basic features of the features of the model are incorrect, uh, and the, one of the one of the key findings has been that the the rates of activity that are predicted by the model uh, are not are not consistently found, despite um, sort of overt expression of the symptoms of um, either idiopathic or experimental Parkinsonism. So one typically doesn't see um, hypoactivity of the external segment of the globus pallidus. Um, and there isn't always um, great hyperactivity of the internal segment of the globus pallidus as well. So that's kind of forced people uh, to reevaluate this model. And those recordings are made in humans. Yes, uh, humans and MPTP-treated primates. So they they are they're pretty good. They are very reliable because they're in the real. Yeah. Another disease. yeah another big. Um, problem with the model is it really relies on um, the striatum as the major site of dysfunction in the basal ganglia. And most researchers will tell you that if they record from uh, the striatum in, uh, in Parkinson's disease, then they typically see very little or no neuronal activity. I mean, it's incredibly rare. Uh, and despite this, there's all sorts of uh, abnormal um, patterns of activity going on in the extrastriatal basal ganglia. And these um, abnormal patterns of activity seem to be much more um, robustly correlated with a movement disorder. And so the feeling is now that this, um, this classic model has, has many problems and there are other sort of ideas out there. It was at the time it was proposed as an amazing leap uh, forward. Yeah. I mean, in the in the sense that theories sometimes are, uh, and key pieces of it were not known to be true. They were just postulated mm -hmm. to be true. And one of those was the idea that dopamine is inhibitory on the neurons that project a GPE and excitatory on the ones that project a mm -hmm. GPI. And it had just recently been, at that time, been discovered that there were neurons that just went to GPE and other neurons that went to uh -huh. GPI. That was a a brand new anatomical discovery, and there was certainly no evidence that one group one was excited by dopamine and the other was inhibited. That yeah. was just postulated. Yeah. And um, what happened, you know, to that? It seems to me that that would have been a a key prediction to test yeah. that wouldn't require studying Parkinson's disease. Just say, is dopamine inhibitory on mm -hmm. the one group? So, um, so the person that's really worked most on that. Um, is, is Jim Surmeyer and he has some really actually his evidence is, is quite good that um, the D1 receptor activation in the striatum does indeed facilitate um, a calcium channel, a CRV1 type calcium channel that does promote firing so in that sense it is excitatory uh, and in D2 expressing cells activation of these D2 dopamine receptors reduces the um, 
the contribution of this channel. And so in that sense, it's inhibitory. Um, so there is, there is some good um, sort of cellular molecular evidence um, for that old idea. Um, and there's, there's also more recent evidence that, um, that the indirect um, uh, gamberogic projection neurons of the striatum are indeed hyperexcitable uh, after dopamine depletion. Um, and there's, again, uh, a lot of work has, uh, has been done by, by the Surmai lab on that. So there's definitely facets of the, of the direct indirect pathway model that were uh, very sort of prescient um, and, and a lot of uh, data in support of that. Um, it's just that now we think that the extrastriatal basal ganglia as well are also being, um, one, modulated by dopamine, and two, um, responding uh, and responding in a sort of pathological uh, plastic manner uh, to the loss of dopamine. And the, the thing that really sold people on it was its prediction of the uh, Parkinson's disease symptoms. Mm -hmm. And the prediction was that because the thalamus would be inhibited more, that movements would, would cease. Yeah. So it was a model that predicted the the hypokinesia piece of Parkinson's disease, but it didn't really predict the tremor no. in Parkinson's disease. And it didn't have a, there wasn't, there was no component of the story that really explained tremor ever in that yeah. model. That's true. And so now um, it's clear that actually in the, in the extrasciatal basal ganglia, there are, there's lots of rhythmic activity that's um, correlated um, with the tremulous, sort of classical tremulous activity that you see in Parkinson's disease. Um, and if one looks in the striatum, uh, certainly in the, the projection neurons, there's no evidence that these neurons are displaying any type of uh, pathological rhythm. So now we feel that it's really the extrastriatal basal ganglia that are involved in the manifestation of that symptom. So how would that work? I mean, the dopamine goes to the striatum. The dopamine is what you're losing. It does, uh, but there's always been evidence that dopamine also modulates the extrastriatal basal ganglia. Um, lots of papers uh, from 60s, 70s, um, and uh, it's always been sort of fairly controversial because if you look at the, the dopaminergic innovation of the striatum and then compare it to the extrastriatal basal ganglia, it's pathetic in comparison. Um, and there was also, the morphology of the axons in those structures was suggestive that, um, that something strange was happening um, concerning the release of dopamine in those structures. There was some sort of volume transmission. So what, what kind of strange morphology were there? Well, they don't really have, um, uh, they don't form sort of classical uh, terminal-like boutons in those structures. Uh, they're just typically sort of thick cable-like structures that course through the nuclei. Um, but when one examines them with electron microscopy, you can see that they form classical synapses. Uh, the the postsynaptic cells in these structures express various dopamine receptors. Physiologists have shown uh, that there are multiple complex um, cascades that are activated by dopamine receptor activation. Um, Stephanie Craig has shown that uh, if you stimulate these dopamine axons, they release dopamine. 
in these structures in a sort of classical calcium-dependent, action-potential-dependent manner. Uh, and the, the concentration of dopamine in the extracellular space is regulated by the dopamine transporter. So everything's in place for just a regular dopaminergic modulation of these structures. And uh, it looks like they, um, they impact both um, presynaptic and postsynaptic elements. The thing that always struck me about the, um, the classical model was that it was uh, also one way. The indirect pathway was always uh, a succession of arrows all going in one direction or going in one direction to the, the basal ganglia output neurons. So striatum to GPE, GPE to STN, STN to GPI. And it's clearly not true because the STN also sends feedback excitatory connections to the external pallidum. And these are, these are not, this is not a trivial connection. The connections between these two structures, between these excitatory inhibitory structures at the center of the basal ganglia are really, really massive. Um, and so, uh, so what I've been interested in is is the relationship between uh, between these structures. Uh, another sort of interesting aspect of the inhibition of the subthalamic nucleus is that is that the pallidum, the external pallidum, doesn't just inhibit the subthalamic nucleus; it can also uh, produce net excitation. It can produce rebound burst firing in these cells. Um, and because of this, this is a classical feature of um, uh, excitatory and inhibitory networks in other parts of the brain that have been shown to um, generate oscillatory rhythmic-like uh, activity. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of uh, the relay thalamic nuclei and the reticular thalamic nuclei, which generate um, sleep-related rhythmic activity. And so I think when, um, when basal ganglia physiologists started to see this pathological rhythmic activity in Parkinson's disease, and then they started to get a, an idea about the, the intrinsic cellular properties of neurons in the external pallidum and in the subthalamic nucleus, it was, it was an obvious um, uh, similarity to, the, to the, thalamic, the thalamic structures. And so we, we think the pallidum uh, can certainly form at least one leg of this um, oscillatory network. So there's a direct dopamine projection from nigra to the subthalamic nucleus. Yes. So, so what is dopamine doing to the intrinsic oscillation or the intrinsic rhythmic activity that you see? So um, it seems to have a couple of effects. So postsynaptically what it does, um, the predominant effect is to, um, it's, these cells are unusual in the sense that they don't need synaptic input to make them fire. Uh, Normally, they fire in a very sort of metronomic, pacemaker-like uh, fashion. Uh, and one thing that dopamine does is um, reduce the regular nature of this discharge. It makes them relatively irregular uh, in, in, the, in their firing pattern. Uh, and it also depolarizes the cells, too. Um, and by depolarizing the cells, what this does is it means that the inhibitory input is now no longer... Um, as capable or as effective as at hyperpolarizing the cell and producing this rebound burst activity. Uh, the rebound burst activity in subthalamic neurons is generated by a calcium channel that's normally latent when the cells are firing autonomously. Uh, it's normally inactivated and it requires the hyperpolarization produced by inhibition to reveal it and to lead to the activation of this channel and produce a burst. So dopamine like it does in the thalamus, is, is responsible for kind of changing the mode or the response of the cell from like a relay mode to um, 
well, actually from a from a bursting mode to a to a relay mode. Um, so yeah, uh, the the other um, big effect of dopamine in these structures is to change the activity dependent plasticity of the inputs to the structures. Um, most of the, uh, the the palatal input, for example, um, is is a depressing like synaptic input. Um, in the absence of dopaminergic modulation, the initial release probability is very high, and then there's very profound depression. Uh, and so, in the absence of dopaminergic innovation, uh, dopaminergic modulation of this input, the panel input is extremely strong but extremely phasic. Uh, and in the presence of dopaminergic modulation, the the input is moderate and it's much more consistent um, and less powerful uh, and less phasic in nature. And again, produces um, uh, again, reduces the tendency to produce this rebound burst firing. So I think both of those, um, in part, explain some of the pathological activity in that structure. Yeah. Robin. So <clears throat> you said there is a, a rebound burst in um, SGN because of GP input. Yes. Uh, how strong are these rebound bursts? I mean, can you can you elicit some bursts just because of a single input, for example? I mean, from the GP. Yeah, so um, it, the palatal input, um, the, the projections of the external palatum are, are interesting. They're, they're like the basket cell of the basal ganglia. These, these neurons um, give rise to uh, baskets. Of individual cells uh, send a sort of basket-like innovation, usually to the cell body and proximal dendrites of the target neuron. Uh, there are multiple terminals, and each terminal can have more than one um, site of synaptic release. So when a single axon um, discharges, you can have really profound um, uh, neurotransmission and produce very sort of large conductances in the postsynaptic cell. So I think um, an individual presynaptic uh, parallel neuron can uh, can synchronize a sub or reset the autonomous activity of a subthalamic neuron and if it fires a little burst of action potentials, then yet probably one or two um, panel neurons can produce a rebound burst in, in the subthalamic cell. So it's a, it's a very powerful input. Michael. So I'd like, to, I'd like to pick up on something earlier you just mentioned about the palosubthalamic input, which is its phasic nature. Um, well, of course, one thing about palatal neurons is they're themselves tonically active. Yeah. And so does that mean, is this, uh, the synaptic depression exhibited by these synapses mean that under normal conditions, it's depressed to the point where it's not very effective and requires some pause in activity and palatal act neuron activity before it can be become effective. Yeah, I mean we've we've really started to work on this uh, recently, and uh, our experiment has been this: we've been we've taken um, recordings from uh, from Nadia Abain. She's given us some of the some natural recordings and awake um, animals from, from GPE neurons. And then we've used that to, to stimulate single uh, GP axons. So specifically to determine whether these axons are capable of tonically transmitting uh, neurotransmitter and influencing the subthalamic nucleus. Um, and it, uh, you know, the story is always more complicated than you would expect. And it seems actually there's a range of results. So it seems as much more heterogeneity than we expected. There is profound depression, so that the first IPSC that is generated often, um, after 10 seconds of this sort of in vivo like activity, the transmission 
uh, can go down to something like 20 to 25% of the initial transmission due to depression. Um, but in other, for other axons, other single axons, we've seen absolutely no depression at all. So it seems that there's some sort of heterogeneity in here that, that influences is, is potentially quite complex. Carlos? So the other thing I don't like about the old models of the basal ganglia is that they, they always just add the dopaminergic nuclei as this vestigial appendage off to the side, and it's not connected to the rest of the basal ganglia, except it just provides this magical dopamine input to, so that the rest of the basal ganglia knows what to do and when to do it. Um, yet, you know, the, they are connected with the rest of the basal ganglia, yeah. and the basal ganglia feeds back upon them, and they feed back to the basal ganglia. And um, I, I think a lot of the, the, just the, the, the phasic nature and, uh, of dopamine input to the basal ganglia is lost in all of these models, where it's either there's dopamine there consistently, and, and then the basal ganglia just knows what to do. It's like an on switch. Yeah. And, or it's not there in cases of Parkinson's disease, and then everything just breaks down. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was just wondering if, if you had any, any thoughts about um, how the basal ganglia actually influences dopaminergic inputs, um, dopaminergic nuclei, and then how that plays back to the basal ganglia. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is part of the basal ganglia, and it's, I think it probably all acts as you know one unit, not the basal ganglia, and then um, a dopaminergic nucleus. It, even if it's even included in the model, it's just yeah. you know, dopamine's either present or not. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's clearly a uh, you know, dopamine clearly has multiple roles in the basal ganglia. I mean, one, it, it definitely seems to have this tonic role, which is important for network function. Um, but in addition, it has this role when, when the neurons burst fire, which seems to be important for uh, corticostriatal synaptic plasticity and reward-related learning um, type behaviors as well. Um, so, the, so the basal ganglia, yeah, I mean, there are multiple routes by which um, sub- subthalamic neurons, striatal neurons, um, basal ganglia output neurons can all influence the activity, the ongoing activity of dopamine neurons. Um, but precisely how that maps and ha- precisely how that relates to um, the sort of uh, behavioral studies that people like Wolfram Schultz and Guy Bergman have done, we don't really have, a, I think, a very good understanding of how basal ganglia activity leads to burst firing in dopamine neurons and 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 in addition the the precise role of dopamine in in uh, corticostriatal plasticity and um, striatal network operations again i think is is incredibly incredibly complex so yeah and in addition it looks like um from people like uh, peter regre's work that uh, there are also a variety of sort of subcortical non-basal ganglia inputs to dopamine neurons that seem to be really important in, in patterning their activity. So, um, so yeah, so no, definitely dopamine isn't isn't just there to prevent us from getting Parkinson's disease. <laughs> it seems to be there like a two-way role. One is um, to facilitate a certain mode of activity in the basal ganglia, and then additionally, it seems to be really important for um, teaching uh, basal ganglia specific types of behavior that lead to uh, rewarding um, events or, you know, uh, 
really sort of consolidates rewarding, re- rewarded types of motor activity. Yeah, I think it's a, as like with the models, when with the the indirect and direct pathway models, it was just basically a model of how the basal ganglia produces Parkinson's disease. Yeah, and and a lot of these models just explain what the basal ganglia does when things are really bad, like when you have Parkinson's disease. But that I, I don't think that those models really um, delve into the what the computation of the basal ganglia really is. It just it's like a really bad lesion study. You know, mm-hmm. it's just what the base what happens to the basal ganglia when everything just breaks down. Yeah. And that doesn't really tell you about what does the basal ganglia do when it's actually doing what it's supposed to do. Yeah, I agree. Which it is? Who knows? But uh, but it's it, like you said, it's not to prevent us from getting Parkinson's. Yeah, I mean, not to denigrate the classic model too much. It did give us some really useful clinical applications for you know that, that have ameliorated a lot of Parkinson's disease type symptoms, which is I thought something that we could talk about because that's controversial. On the yeah, so I mean DVDs. that's another kind of um, what's the word revolution in. What well, well, caused us to question the, the classical model because uh, a current therapy, a current therapy of choice for some Parkinson's disease patients is uh, is this uh, deep brain stimulation technique where they, they stimulate the subthalamic nucleus at high frequency. Uh, and then when they do this, they're able to reduce um, L-DOPA medication and together the deep brain stimulation and the reduced dopaminergic medication produces a very... Um, and a sort of excellent result on, on motor activity in, in these patients. So it seems strange that, you know, according to the classic model, um, stimulation of the subthalamic nucleus should actually worsen the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and yet it seems to improve them. Um, and so there's been a big um, drive by researchers to kind of understand exactly what deep brain stimulation is doing. And again, it's a really complex issue. We don't know whether subthalamic neurons or subthalamic output is being um, increased in frequency or changed in its firing pattern. Uh, We don't know whether the stimulators are actually antidromically activating uh, neurons that project to the subthalamic nucleus and then sort of changing the the activity of the network in that manner. Um, But the available evidence is, uh, I think, in favor of the idea that subthalamic output is being... uh, not necessarily reduced in its frequency, but definitely altered in its pattern. Um, and it certainly looks like subthalamic output is still still robust under those conditions. So um, when we think about what how the basal ganglia work and what the different components uh, what the different components do, your view changes a lot as you include projections that were previously neglected. So in the original direct indirect pathway model, the subthalamic nucleus was just a link in the indirect pathway chain. When you um, take into account this very tight functional coupling between the GPE and the STN, then suddenly this becomes a a pattern generator for the basal ganglia that might at least contribute to uh, things that go wrong in Parkinson's disease. Now, additionally, um, the subthalamic nucleus gets a cortical input, and so when you add that in, it's possible that your whole notion of what the subthalamic nucleus is there for could change again. So I was wondering if you would comment on what you think the functional significance is of this direct cortical input to the subthalamic nucleus. I mean, this is the so-called hyperdirect pathway. Um, And so actually the first response in, if you measure 
basal ganglia, if you measure the subthalamic neurons or the, or the basal ganglia output neurons, the first response to cortical stimulation is excitation. It's very rapid uh, and it's very brief and it's mediated through this cortical uh, subthalamic pathway. Um, in addition, it seems to be very broad. It, it seems that um, many subthalamic neurons and many basal ganglia output neurons respond broadly with this initial excitation. And so, um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know what the uh, the neural code of the basal ganglia is, and I don't know what message it's specifically giving to the rest of the brain, so I can't really interpret what that might be, but it, it seems that this broad excitation um, seems to set a kind of background upon which um, the sort of classical direct pathway might might begin to operate, um, a kind of lateral excitation uh, sort of idea uh, is, is apparent at the moment. Um, and then I think because this reciprocal um, relationship with the external pallidum seems to be important for producing uh, a kind of later phase of excitation as well. So I think that I think this network and its engagement by the cortex and, and also by the striatum is, is really important in producing um, periods of excitation. Um, and these, are, these could be important in selection of particular movements or termination of particular movements. So would it be accurate to say that as far as you know now that um, the cortical input at the subthalamic nucleus is serving as a kind of modulatory role in a similar sense that um, corticothalamic projections that are not driver synapses are proposed to be modulatory, they raise the membrane potential of thalamic neurons and make them respond in a certain way, but they're not believed to be driving spikes on a spike-by-spike -spike basis. This is a... Mm -hmm. Uh, no, I think I think um, you get a very robust spiking response from from cortical stimulation, subthalamic neurons. It's, it, um, for, it seems to be a very depressing synapse, though. So I, I think that at least the initial excitation, you know, it's a very um, robust uh, impact on the firing of those cells. I think subsequent cortical activity. Um, through the same synapses is, is, is less effective at patterning the output of the subthalamic nucleus. So I don't think it's necessarily strictly, strictly one or the other. So for, from a modeling point of view, uh, what are the major issues that you would like a modeler to address in regarding the basic angular function or particularly the SG image? You know, I mean, I haven't, uh, there are, you know, after working on the subthalamic nucleus for 15 years, I'm now thinking that um, that we know enough about specific uh, parts, specific aspects of the subthalamic nucleus that modeling could be really helpful. It could really, it could really explain um, maybe some of the cellular physiology that we, that we see, but it, you know, one of the one of the problems with um, with these structures is that there's been relatively little research done on them compared to, say, cortical structures. So the the connections between the nuclei, some of the sort of basic physiological properties, are still not fully understood. And so I've always been wanting to sort of get that work done before before sort of interacting with modelers. And and I think you know some of those some of these issues about um, I mean, Charlie um, with uh, sorry, Dr. Wilson 
with David Terman, uh, generated a model of this network a few years ago. And I thought it was really useful in the sense that um, it, it used a variety of architectures, of connectional architectures to describe the connections between the external paladin and the subthalamic nucleus, and how critical that was to the, uh, the ensuing activity in this network. So, I, I, you know, I, I think that um, for me, uh, modeling can start to explain some of the basic, um, really at the cellular physiological level, how uh, synaptic inputs are being integrated and how they're patterning, patterning the neurons at the network level. I think we still await um, some of the precise sort of connectional details. And I think once we have those, then then generating network models will be, will be incredibly useful. Um, Chris? So um, in regards to missing cellular physiology pieces, one of the things that you've been doing is looking at um, uh, exponential initiation and propagation in rhythmic cells. And um, so you show pretty good evidence that there's exponential backpropagation, active properties in dendrites of these cells, um, which <clears throat> in, cor in cortical neurons and in CA1 neurons and stuff, that signal people have proposed clear meaning. Like an exponential backpropagating in the dendrites signals the cell fired, that triggers synaptic plasticity and other things. Yeah. But in a rhythmic cell that is always firing, <clears throat> what, what does that signal? Have you had any ideas about what that could mean or do? I mean, it could still be really important for things like um, spike timing-dependent plasticity. Mm -hmm. I mean, spike timing-dependent plasticity, um, in contrast to sort of titanic protocols that generate LTP and LTD, uh, requires multiple um, Sort of you know multiple pairings of uh, synaptic input with um, with action potential firing. So I think it, that you know back propagation could be important for that, um, but it could also be important for we know um, in these we know in subthalamic cells for example that the, the action potential activates calcium channels which are important for generating. Uh, for activating a calcium dependent potassium channel that's really important for pacing these cells. So maybe it's maybe it's part of that too. Um, at, we, at the moment we I mean unlike cortical cells it's really difficult to make a, a, you know a sort of direct whole cell measurement from from dendrites. So we don't really know um, if action potentials are really actively propagating into dendrites and, and certainly what membrane potential the dendrites are, are being driven to by the action potential. So yeah, we, that, that, uh, we don't know yet. It seems to me that that's a great question because the in a rhythmically firing neuron, I mean in a neuron that isn't rhythmically firing, in a neuron that is excited to fire from rest, yeah. the synapses that were active just before the action potential are the ones that are causing the action potential. Yeah. But in a rhythmically active neuron, all the synapses all the way back to the last spike are contributing to the time of the next spike. There's no little window uh, in which synapses are important. And so uh, restricting synaptic plasticity to the just a few milliseconds around the action potential is not a wise way to train the cell to pay attention to the synapses that are most important, uh, unlike the situation in a cell that fires from rest. So, so uh, there are, I mean, there are other modes. So um, there's a nice paper by Indira Rahman in, in Deep Cerebellar Nuclei. They show there that um, 
that you need a, a rebound burst like of activity that's paired with um, excitatory synaptic input, and that's the trigger for synaptic plasticity. So it could be that there's a different rule in, in these autonomously active cells. So yeah, I agree with that. So dopamine neurons are autonomously active, and the, the backpropagation is pretty efficient in the cells. Yeah. Goes pretty, so that could be useful for dendritic release of dopamine, for yeah. instance. Um, whereas like Purkinje neurons, which are rhythmic, they don't, the backpropagation is pretty weak. But um, is it perhaps maybe in other rhythmic cells, like subthalamic cells or palatal cells, maybe it's uh, triggering release of transmitter in some way? There's not, much, there's, there's, not much there's not much evidence for dendritic release of transmitter in these cells. Yeah. Um, you don't see any yet. 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 It seems, yeah. I mean, it, to me, it seems like it's a, more of a stretch to use that as some you know, mechanism of plasticity, whereas transmitter release, even if it was weak. Mm-hmm. So dendritic release of transmitter would change everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, if somebody's going to discover that, would they please do that right away? It's, it's an out there, I think it's an out there idea. I, but I wouldn't predict that's what's going on, but I think it's a possibility it could that be a role be for that. would be amazing. It would really change everything. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone for being here. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks for being this morning. Okay, thank you. Thank you.